Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, it suddenly turned from beautiful spring to hot summer in, in one day. We went immediately from the 60s to the 90s last week, actually this week. It's unusually hot in Utah right now. I just went up to the ranch. The river is running extremely high. There's no way I'm going to get in that river, and there's no way I want to fish in that river right now. It's muddy and murky in what is normally a clear mountain stream. This morning I got up and went on a two-hour walk. I was up at the ranch, wandering around. I spotted one deer, and I heard something big move through the woods. I think it was an elk I spooked up. Over the weekend, I went on a Utah Mushroom Society walk up in Heber Valley, and I found some huge, what are called horse mushrooms, and also a, a bunch of fairy ring mushrooms. Brought them back, sliced them up, put them on the dehydrator, and they are drying right now. Ate a few of them, ate some of both of the mushrooms. I thought the fairy ring mushrooms were much tastier, but both were a very nice mushroomy taste. Very, very good mushrooms. I usually won't pick mushrooms, especially by myself, unless I have somebody with me that can identify the mushrooms. But now I feel confident enough of my own abilities to identify probably about six varieties of edible mushrooms. But that's why I belong to this group. They have some mycologists. I think that's what they're called. Mycologists. My mycology, yeah, the study of mushrooms, mycology. And they go with us and we bring our mushrooms back and they identify them by the Latin name, agrarius, I think these were called, agrarius, something else, but commonly called horse mushrooms and fairy mushrooms. And if they're safe, I'll take them home and dry them if I can't eat them immediately or cook them up right then and there. It doesn't have anything to do with sailing, but that's what I've been up to for the last couple of days. I'm getting ready to go sailing at the end of the month. Looking forward to that. I'll be in Stockholm, Sweden. So if any of my listeners are in Stockholm, drop me a note. I'll be out with one of my favorite listeners, Neil Fletcher. He and I will be sailing on his new boat, Arcturus, which was previously owned by Andy Shell of 59 North Podcast. So that'll be fun. This will be my first experience of sailing in the Baltic. Anyway, if you're up there, drop me a note. We might be able to catch a beer together. So today we have the second part of my interview with Dr. Joe Alton, more commonly known as Dr. Bones, where we're going to continue to talk about what should be in an offshore medical kit. If you have any thoughts, any comments, drop me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com, or use the contact form at the website, medsailor.com. But before we get on to the podcast, my quick advertisement, and it's going to be very quick this time. If you are studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, I can't 
teach you how to sail, but I can help you pass the written portion of those examinations. I have audiobooks available for you at the website, medsailor.com. If you're just learning how to sail and you want to learn some of the terminology, I have a free audio series of lessons, the first eight lessons of the ASA 101 series of lessons, Sailing Learn to Sail Basic Keelboat Certification. They're available for you if you want to sign up for the newsletter. So check it out, medsailor.com. If you have thoughts of future podcasts, topics you'd like to have me cover, drop me a note. I'll see if I can cover those topics. And if you really like this podcast, please go into the iTunes store and write a review on the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. All right, with that out of the way, let's get on to my second interview, the second part of my interview with Dr. Joe Alton, better known as Dr. Bones. I'm honored today to have Dr. Joe Alton and his wife, Nurse Amy, as guests on this podcast. They are the producers of the Survival Medicine Hour, another podcast. They're also the producers of the American Survival Radio, which is one I just discovered today. And they're the authors of a book that I recommend every sailor have on board their their bookshelf. It's called the Survival Medicine Handbook. Dr. Alton, tell us about your bona fides. Well, I just want to let you know that, friends, uh, that we're honored to be on your show, and thank you very much for having us on there. I am Joe Alton, MD, and I am a life fellow of the American College of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology and a retired fellow of the American College of Surgeons. And uh, as I just said, I'm retired, but my mission is a very active one. I do carry an active medical license, and uh, my mission is very simply to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Absolutely. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm actually an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, also retired, full-time prepping, <laughs> full-time educator. And um, I'm actually going to let uh, Joe handle most of this interview because I think it's a little easier to ask questions. But if you have anything specific for me, I'm happy to chime in. Let me tell you a story that uh, happened to me. I was on a friend's boat. We were sailing off the California coast. We went over to one of the Channel Islands, uh, one of them that has, uh, it was one of the wilderness islands. So there's, it was like Catalina that has a, a town and a hospital. But we were out at this island about 20 miles away from Ventura. I'm trying to remember the island. I, I can't, it was north of Anacapa. Anyway, the next one north of Anacapa. So we were, we were at anchor, and there was... Oh, five or six of us on board, and one of the men on board was the was the father of one of the other other men on board, and so it was a father, a son, and their his two grandkids, his two boys, his two grandkids were on the boat. Then the owner of the boat and me and another buddy of mine. And anyway, the the grandfather uh, started having a hard time talking and became disoriented. And my other friend said, "I think he's having a stroke." And uh, and immediately gave him some aspirin, and we talked to his his son. He said, "Oh no, he's fine. He's okay. He's okay. He's okay." Well, in hindsight, we should have just called for uh, for a helicopter to come out and pick him up, but we didn't. We took you know we went back to Ventura, and then they took him to the hospital, and sure enough, it had a, a small, a mild stroke, and it turned out he was okay. And 
I think he attributes it to the fact that we made him settle down and we made him take some aspirin and that was about it. But what would what would be the proper techniques to identify a stroke and what should you do? People who have strokes oftentimes will complain of a sudden headache and they'll start they'll have a sudden headache. They almost always you almost see them uh, almost always see them put their head their hand to their head. And then they start, uh, as uh, your, your friend's father did, uh, they start having difficulty making themselves understood. And so slurred speech or, or lack of speech, that's an issue they wind up having uh, on one side of their, their, their body. Uh, their, their facial muscles will go, go lax. So you, you may see them, they'll look sort of unusual as you know they might be grimacing on one side of their face and no motion on the other side of their face at all they'll have weakness if you took uh, of the extremities on one side what you would do to, to determine this is basically ask them to grab uh, hold out your hands to them and ask them to grab uh, your index and your middle finger with both hands and they grab it and then you try to and then you say, hold on tight, and then you try to pull them away. And if and, and somebody with a stroke, you'll be easily able to pull away uh, one, ha- the hand, one hand, interestingly, on the opposite side from where the stroke occurred, and uh, the other hand will still retain normal strength. They also have a certain look when they're walking. Uh, so th- there are all sorts of different uh different signs that make it clear that a stroke has a- occurred. The funny thing about it is that Although aspirin is probably the only thing that you would have that would make that could make a difference in a stroke, there are two types of strokes. One stroke is caused by a blood clot in the brain, and an aspirin would help that. But other people have a hemorrhagic stroke from, let's say, having um, maybe an aneurysm or or a blood vessel that is defective. Let's say that, and having that pop. And if that pops, that's called a hemorrhagic stroke. And giving an aspirin actually worsens that so it's it's a and by the way without advanced evaluation and technology it's almost impossible to determine which has occurred i mean you know they have a stroke but you don't know what type of stroke so uh, an aspirin is probably the only thing that you had and it deals with a lot of those and and actually and worsens a smaller a smaller percentage so it's that type of thing. But aspirin is very important to have because people can have heart, attack, heart attacks on a boat, too. And those people should be chewing on aspirin. Uh, make sure that you uh, loosen their clothing, put them at about a 45-degree angle. Don't put them flat. And uh, this is what you would have to do for somebody like that. Of course, if, you know, if you're able to get these people evacuated as soon as possible, that's what you've got, that's what you've got to do. Okay, so we we could have done more harm, but we probably got lucky in that case. So, is there a percentage that are that are hemorrhagic strokes versus blood clots? I think that m- more of them are going to be hemorrhagic in people. I mean, are going to be excuse me, are going to be uh, blood clots in people. Uh, I'm assuming he's uh, an old folk like me. Yeah, and he's doing fine to this day. So he survived just fine. But uh, but with with strokes uh, with strokes friends, the more quickly that you see improvement, the more likely there'll be full recovery. If, it, if there is no improvement in the first 48 hours, then it, uh, the likelihood of a full recovery goes down quite a bit. 
All right. Let's talk a few other things that I want to talk about. Dysentery. That's what I've had to deal with in Turkey a few times. How do you deal with dysentery? And it's usually from the water. And it may not be the water you drink. It may be the salad you ate that had, that was washed with dirty water. That's That seems to be what we found in Turkey. My daughter came down with dysentery one year. I came down with it on a different year. Uh, fortunately, we were in an area where they know, knew how to deal with it, and you could buy the drugs for it over the counter. But I think these were antibiotics we had to end up getting. Yes, actually, I strongly feel that uh, everyone who is going to be uh, the medically responsible person for um, an, an austere setting uh, needs to have a supply of antibiotics, and, and that would certainly include sailors who are going to be on the open seas. There are a lot of things that can happen. You can, you can have a, a, a small cut that can easily get very infected, wind up going into your bloodstream, could actually kill you in some cases if you don't nip it in the bud with, uh, in the bud with uh, antibiotics. So uh, antibiotics for you, your American listeners uh, are actually very easy to get uh, without a prescription. Uh, I'm the, uh, as Amy told, uh, uh, may have told you in the past that uh, I was the uh, president of an international aquarium society. I raised tilapia in ponds as a food fish as part of my uh, sort of self-reliant uh, philosophy. And when my, when my human patients got an infection, let's say that would be treated with uh, an antibiotic like amoxicillin, well, I would give them amoxicillin. When my fish got something like fin rot, which is a bacterial disease of fish, I would give them a medication called fish mox. Now, for many years before I became interested in preparedness, I never thought twice about it. But when I realized that it was important to be medically prepared and that many people would die avoidable deaths as a result of the lack of antibiotics, I tried to look for alternatives. So I looked at my fish antibiotic as a possibility. And when I took a look at the ingredients, there was actually only one ingredient. And that was, in this particular case, amoxicillin 500 milligrams. Now, 500 milligrams is a dose that an adult human takes. So why would my betta fish require an adult human's dose of amoxicillin? I found out that these drugs were only made in human dosages, even though they're meant for guppies. <laughs> or for parakeets. There are avian antibiotics like this too. And so I took a closer look at it. And I took a bottle of uh, human amoxicillin made by Deva Pharmaceuticals. And I took a box of uh, a bottle of uh, fish mox, the 500, 500 milligram version. And the human amoxicillin was a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. And the fish mox was a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. Identical, then. And I found that for 12 different antibiotics. Everything from uh, uh, doxycycline to keflex or cephalexin to um, azithromycin to clindamycin, all, all sorts, and, and, all the, all the, and a number of penicillin uh, drugs as well. So... What that means is that these, these medications are, you don't need a, a veterinarian's prescription, at least not yet you don't, uh, to get them. You can buy them 
by the hundreds if you needed to, as opposed to begging your doctor for 14 of them for a week's supply or, or 28 of them for a week's supply. And uh, they, if used judiciously, and I write often about how to use antibiotics wisely, both in my book, The Survival Medicine Handbook, and also on my website at doomandbloom.net, uh, then you could possibly save the life of save the life of a loved one that otherwise might have died because of the lack of it. Now, of course, we're talking about normal times here, but your people, uh, your uh, I'm sorry, your listeners may actually spend a couple of weeks maybe on the open seas without uh, uh, coming near land or, or reaching land, and so this may be an appropriate. Uh, option for them to have some of these in their supplies. It's very important to know how to use them, and, and certainly I'm not telling people to, to use them as part of their daily routine uh, while on land. You know, there are medical professionals available, and certainly I want them to you know, seek out modern, modern and standard medical help whenever it's available. Now, you're, you, I've got your book, and you detail these 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 antibiotics and the equivalent in the veterinary uh, in your book. So I'm going to recommend people get your book to get that information because I thought that was really interesting when I read that. Also, I have your, your books available on Kindle, and I have both the, both of your hardback, or I shouldn't say hardback, your, your softback big book on my bookshelf and also the Kindle edition that's always with me on my phone and everywhere else I go. So You know, you know that it took me two or three years. It took took me two years before I would put the book on Kindle because of being true to my mission. Really, uh, I, what I write about is an assumption that there are no necessarily doctors or hospitals that you're going to be able to reach because something has happened, some kind of disaster has has happened. So I want people to have the print version, if at all possible. But the demand was, for the Kindle version was so great that. Uh, eventually, I, I just had to put it in Kindle. All right. Let me get back to dysentery. What do you recommend uh, for dysentery? What is there a? I know there's specific drugs that we had to get. In other words, I think there were two or three of them that we had to had to take. Well, uh, there are a number of drugs for dysentery because dysentery may be caused by a number of uh, different issues. Uh, Shigella is one of them, and uh, that would be something that. You would consider, some, uh, let's say, doxycycline, azithromycin, metronidazole. Um, these are things that these are some of the antibiotics that might be useful for that. These are also helpful for traveler traveler's diarrhea, uh, which is not always the same as dysentery. Diarrheal disease, in and of itself, is is a myriad. It's a spectrum of a lot of different disorders, and I'll be writing a, a third edition. Uh, in the future, and I'm going to have that each one of these listed out so that people can uh, actually identify them. And some of them are treated with different antibiotics. So that's that's the the thing is that they're always there's always something different. Probably should uh, not use uh, penicillin drugs. Uh, a lot of these penicillin drugs are first generation drugs, the ones that are available in um, in veterinary form and probably aren't going to be as effective. There's, of course, antibiotic resistance that has occurred in recent years. I'm sure your wife can tell you about that. And so you, you really want, uh, you're really going to need something that's more of a second-generation drug. Okay. 
Now, I just listened to your last podcast, and you did a lot of, you gave out a lot of information on dental. And that's the other thing that you might have a problem with on a boat is, is a dental problem, either a bad tooth or you get hit in the face with something, and uh, you might have teeth problems. You, and you have a specific dental kit. So I'm going to refer people to, number one, listen to your latest podcast to get more information on this, and, and then possibly look at your dental kit that you have at your website. But if you have any quick comments you want to talk about, on dental uh, medical care, just go right ahead. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, from a, the standpoint of uh, off-grid or austere medicines, dental issues actually are going to come up as often as the medical issues come up. Matter of fact, during the Vietnam War, fifty fully fifty percent of sick call uh, visits were for dental issues and not for medical issues. So this is something that. In a circumstance where you're going to be in an austere setting, and I'm not talking about one that is, you know, two or three days without power or two or three days away from land, you may not need a major medical, a major dental kit if you're going to be that close to being able to access an actual dentist. But in a long-term setting or if you're going to be out for a long period of time out of reach on the open seas, then you definitely need to have a dental kit. The dental kit should have some... um, the ability to deal with tooth abscesses, that means you might need a scalpel. A tooth abscess will look like a pimple below a tooth, and so you may need to pop that. That is a major, that's a major issue. Many times it means that a tooth is on its way out in terms of being viable. Uh, you're going to have loose fillings. Uh, you're going to have loose crowns. Uh, if you put together, you can either get commercial uh, material that will actually be a sort of temporary filling type material like Dentemp or Tempanol, or you can consider um, clove oil, which is a natural anesthetic, essential oil of clove, and some zinc oxide powder. You take two drops of zinc oxide powder and uh, you take two drops of the clove oil, excuse me, and uh, mix it with some zinc oxide powder, make a paste, apply it into the uh, defect left by the missing filling or in in the crown and it hardens into a cement it's temporary but it, it's useful so i think that's good of course our major dental kits are meant as you can imagine for long-term survival settings and they include even dental extractors because in the old days and i'm not talking about roman times i'm talking about 60 70 years ago i mean if there was a dental emergency it was often treated with extraction. And, and the survival medicine handbook uh, even talks about how to extract the tooth, how to deal with the tooth that's been knocked out, how you deal with the tooth that's broken. So we, we do really concentrate on these issues because there is something that you eventually you as the medic are going to encounter. And so it's important to have the materials. And basically the way we came upon our dental kit is we had a couple of dentists that were interested in preparedness. We gave them an empty bag and we said, you are off the grid for the next 10 years. You're the dentist. Fill this up. And so they actually, interestingly enough, put together almost exactly the same items. And uh, we really feel that uh, that it's an excellent kit, but it's an excellent kit for people that believe or the people that know they're going to be in a situation where there's going maybe a, a good period of time where they're not going to be able to access modern dental care. You remember? Do you remember the movie Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman? 
Yes, they drilled it. <laughs> oh my gosh! That's where I that's where I learned about oil of clove because that he said that's what he would put in to numb the pain. I remember seeing yeah. that scene. <laughs> oh my gosh! You're, yeah, you know you're right. Absolutely, I, I had totally forgotten that. That was from the seventies, I think. My goodness. Yeah, we're we're dating ourselves. <laughs> one last one last thing, and I think you've covered a lot of material. Is uh, is I was on my boat in in British Columbia, off the coast of British Columbia, and I, I was getting into the dinghy, and I actually getting out of the dinghy, I stepped up at the the shrouds, and it was my fault because I I had taken my turnbuckles and put some seizing wire in them to keep them from turning, but I left a little point of the wire outside, and my knee caught on it, sliced yeah. my knee. And my wife looked at it, and I and unfortunately uh, we were right next to a little town that had a little clinic in it. She said, "You got to go get stitches in that." And so I went and got back in the dinghy, rowed to shore, and went up to the clinic and got some stitches in it. But I told my wife, I said, "You should just you, you know you're a nurse. We got sutures on board. Just stitch it up." She said, "No, you go go to a doctor if you can." And, and she gave me good advice because you you should go to somewhere where they they have the uh, facilities for it. But you also have some classes to teach how to stitch and and tell us a little bit about if we want to do this or if we should do this. T- talk to us a little bit about you know stitches stitches or staples or butterfly bandages. Well, I'll tell you that uh, there's that's probably one of the uh, classes that are most in demand when uh, I go into an area. We're going to be doing a suture class in Albany, Oregon uh, next weekend, as a matter of fact. And so we're going to be teaching that. And we're going to be in Springfield, Missouri, doing the same thing uh, two or three weeks after that. So, uh, so it is something that we do very often. And uh, the thing that people... And the people and people are always excited to be able to learn a new skill, and, and I think it's wonderful. But the truth of the matter is, what's most important and what we really try to teach in this class is not just the twist of the wrist to throw a stitch, but the truth of the matter is, you're trying to impart the judgment as to when a wound should be closed and a wound when a wound should not be closed. There are many wounds in austere settings and wilderness settings that are dirty wounds, and by closing a dirty wound, you may actually wind up locking in an infection and causing a great deal of danger to the person that you're taking care of. And so this is one issue that is very important. There are some circumstances where wounds should be left open. And those wound, and those are uh, when a wound is over eight hours old, air has bacteria and it colonizes the wound after a certain period of time. So you shouldn't close a wound that's over eight hours old. shouldn't close a wound that's red or raw-looking. When I say red, I mean swollen and red. It'll usually feel warm to the touch. That wound is infected already, should not be closed. So that's that's one that uh, shouldn't be closed. Now, wounds that uh, can be closed with uh, butterflies are wounds that are very loosely open. In other words, they're they're, they're not together, but they don't gape out open so much that there's a lot of tension when you put the skin together. And so that would be something that would be not unreasonable to close with wounds, or even glue, even super glue has been used to, to close wounds. Of course, that is a little outside the conventional wisdom, but places like Cuba, which don't have two nickels to rub together, I mean, they have to use things like that for a, a lot of their emergency room cases. 
Um, sutures and staples are a uh, something. If you're doing the suturing and if you're doing the stapling, then something has happened. And they may not be making this stuff anymore, so you should only reserve those methods for situations where you absolutely have to use sutures. Matter of fact, you might consider suturing and stapling just a portion of a wound and then closing the rest once you've gotten rid of the tension on the open wound uh, with steri-strips. This is one of the things that uh, I teach in my class and everything that I teach is meant to be material conservative because we never know if we're ever going to be able to come across sutures or staples again in, in true survival settings. But these are, these are, they're definitely a, there's definitely a place for closing wounds. For example, wounds I would not want you to close in an, um, a, in an open sea setting would probably be clo wounds that are caused by animal bites. Uh, uh, let's say your, your dog bites one of your crew, you know, that, that's a wound that should be kept open. They should, you know, keep it, wash it very, uh, carefully and, and, keep it open and it'll scar. It won't be as pretty but uh, as if you closed it, but it will be less likely to become infected. Always have an, another one other item that I think is very important is to have an irrigation syringe. And that is about a 60 to 100 cc syringe that you can fill with clean water, sterile, clean drinkable water uh, or sterile water and, and flush out with force those wounds to get out debris and to get out bacteria. All right. Do you use honey much? I know some hospitals are starting to use honey as, a, as an ointment. Do you have yes, used? as a matter of fact, uh, all of our kits that are from, uh, from our, all of our kits that have, are big enough, the medium, from the medium kit all the way to the largest kits, have raw, unprocessed honey. Raw, unprocessed honey has um, antibacterial properties. I think it's very useful. You can use it on burns. You could use it on uh, uh, wounds, open wounds that are healing from the inside out. Um, you can use them on the outside of wounds as a, a, a of a closed wound, for example, as a protect a preventative for infections. So the the what you're mentioning is something an actual pharmaceutical product called Medi Honey, but it's pretty much just pasteurized. You know, it, it's it's similar to raw and processed honey. Oh, okay, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Tell them where your website is. I'm going to put links to your website and to your podcasts. And I think we'll probably break this up into two episodes because we went a little longer than I thought. But that's great. I really appreciate your time. If you have anything else we ought to talk about, feel free to say anything. Tell them about your products. You know, one thing I want to mention is I, I went and looked at your products and your first aid kits. And you detail everything that's in the first aid kit and it's like, you don't really care if you buy the kit from you, but these are what's in the kit and these are what you should consider buying. And I think that's great that, you, that you're doing that. I really yeah, appreciate that. Exactly. You know, I honestly don't care if you ever buy anything from me. The important stuff, the important thing is I want you to get the stuff on the list that I freely publish about each kit. So if you can find it on your own um, and and want to put together a kit on your own, I fully agree with that and i encourage you to do it but please do it get off your you know <laughs> rear end and get to work lazy bones you know because it's very important to have a medical a, a medical kit 
there, you never know when you're going to be in the middle of a situation where some of you might be injured uh, or somebody might be ill and that you might be able to make a difference if you had some supplies. So uh, please check out our website at uh, www.doomandbloom.net, one of the top 10 survival websites actually on the Internet, according to Survival Top 50 and uh, a number of other lists. And uh, check out our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Check out our website, uh, our, I'm sorry, podcast, uh, The Survival Medicine Hour, Purely Survival Medicine, uh, and American Survival Radio, more uh, opinion and uh, current events. And uh, let's see what else. Twitter, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And you can find us on Facebook. You can join our survival medicine group, which is called Survival Medicine Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. I'm, they call me Dr. Bones in the preparedness community, so you'll find me also as that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Franz, thank you. It's been an honor to be on your show. All right. Thanks for listening. Again, if you are just learning how to sail and you want to learn the terminology, I have eight free audio lessons available for you if you sign up for the newsletter. So consider that if you're trying to learn the terminology of sailing. Tell your family and friends about the podcast. I'd appreciate it. And if you really like the podcast, write me a review in the iTunes directory or whatever directory you use to find the podcast. Also, if you have comments, feel free to write me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com. If you have topics you'd like me to cover, if you have stories you'd like to tell on your own, if you have experience in the Mediterranean or have good stories to tell, let me know. I probably want to talk to you. All right. Get out there and go sailing. Joe? Do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be 10 years from now, you know? Thank <laughs> you.